Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different great varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. So, welcome everybody. I'm here with uh, Trevor Clough of Digby, an English sparkling wine producer, uh, which is featured in my wine club, and we have a bottle of the uh, non-vintage Brute, uh, which we're going to share virtually. So it's great that I can be in California tasting English sparkling wine and being able to communicate with a, a producer from England as well. The wonders of uh, technology these days and also the expansion of English wine. So um, I was just saying to Trevor, I don't actually know that much about English wine. Not as much as I do as about other regions, even though I'm from England. In part because I'm from the north of England and English sparkling wine is mainly in the south of England. But also because I moved to California six years ago when English wine was still in its infancy, I think. And in the last six years, we've gone from being having no sparkling wine from England in California to actually being really well represented and a lot of producers, not just Digby, but quite a few other good producers as well. So I'm really excited to talk to Trevor and learn more about English wine and um, about Digby, the producer itself. Trevor, if you could just um, kind of introduce yourself and the Digby um, producer. Sure, I'd be very happy to. So my name is Trevor Clough uh, and greetings from Arundel, West Sussex. Uh, uh, we are called Digby Fine English. Uh, our headquarters is in this fine Norman Castle town. Uh, and our ambition has always been uh, to make world-class sparkling wine and bring it to the world. That's a and fine ambition. <laughs> it, it's a, a joy and a privilege to be able to represent our young nation of wine on the world stage. Right, so English sparkling wine only really goes back to the 1990s, I think, or maybe a little bit earlier than that. But um, when did Digby begin? So my first vintage was 2009, and we launched for sale in Selfridges in London in 2013. So uh, Selfridges, glamorous department store, some of your viewers may have seen the telly show, Mr. Selfridge, uh, but Selfridges uh, is pretty much the place for an aspiring luxury brand in this country where you want to launch, where you want to launch. But of course, you've got to you've got to get through the gatekeepers, and their buyer is a master of wine, so she knows her stuff. Uh, and so we've been yeah, producing wine for just over ten years, uh, and in the market for a bit over seven. So in wine terms, we're still a youngster. Yeah, absolutely. So it's great that you've managed to get your wine in Selfridges, but also over here in California as well, within 10 years. It's quite an achievement. And what was your inspiration for wanting to be a world-class sparkling wine producer? Was it boredom? Yeah, it was boredom. Um, what on earth am I talking about? So my husband Jason and I were working in London in the corporate world, and we just had this, this little voice in the back of our heads that said, what are you boys going to do with your lives? And we wanted to do something cool, something inspiring, something completely different. But we also knew we wanted to be in, basically in the kind of hospitality world. Uh, and, but I think then the other little thing that we wanted was we wanted a, a startup concept that would be international. We both lived in different countries and have friends all over the world. And we really love the interplay of different cultures. So we struggled to find the right idea. 
Uh, and then we got a bit fed up. And so what do you do when you're a bit fed up and a bit tired and working really hard? You buy plane tickets. So we went on a road trip to the United States uh, where we've both lived before as well. Uh, and we started off in Salt Lake City and we just drove. Uh, and we went to the rodeo and big sky country. And then by the middle of the second week of the holiday, our brains were wide open to possibility. Be very careful in this circumstance. So, uh, so we ended up in wine country between Portland and Seattle. Uh, and it was on the driveway of a winery south of Washington, uh, south of Seattle, that is, that the lightning bolt boom. And I turned to Jason and I said, English sparkling wine. <laughs> and, you know, uh, you said you, you, left, uh, you, you left England uh, six years ago. So as you will have known at that time, newspapers in the UK were talking about English sparkling wine, although only in reference to that sparkling which is made abroad and how good our stuff is. Right. But nobody was doing anything with it. You couldn't find it anywhere. And we thought, well, either the newspaper critics and the wine people are lying bozos, which as a novice, you kind of, there's a little bit of skepticism in you there. Or B, and here was the hypothesis for us, the wine is actually amazing, like they're saying, and yet nobody's really done that much with it. Nobody's made it cool. Nobody's brought it to people. Uh, and so we came home and we did a bunch of blind tastings. Tinfoil is very useful. <laughs> uh, and we came up with a numbering and lettering system so that even we didn't know which wines were from across the channel and which wines were, were British. Uh, and the wines were a complete revelation. They clean the floor with the Frenchies um, in blind tastings. But then as soon as you ripped the tinfoil off, oh boy, it was embarrassing. They looked like drab, poor, knockoff cousins. And we thought, it's just like we hoped. So an idea was born uh, that we would figure out how, from, a, 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 you know, from zero, to build our own house of bubbles, our own luxury brand of English sparkling. Uh, and here we are. Cheers. Cheers, yeah. I'm enjoying this wine greatly. I think you've said, some, you said something interesting there that people... 10 years ago, we were talking about English sparkling wine, but it felt more of a, a concept rather than an actuality. And I think, um, you know, people would talk about Nightingale and how it would compete with champagne and beat champagne, but other wines weren't really talked about or drunk. And I think that's the big change in the last 10 years, that now people aren't just talking about English sparkling wine, they're actually drinking it. And it's a presence on the world stage. And I also teach WSET classes. And I have cool. WST diploma, and I did my sparkling wine exam in Manchester about six years ago, and English sparkling wine wasn't on the syllabus, but it now is. It's something that you need to know about and taste and will be asked about, so it's, it's really established a presence on the world stage, which I think is fantastic, because as you say, the wines do stand up to the reputation, to the conversation. The story is in the glass. They actually are very good. But how would you differentiate English sparkling wine from champagne in these blind tastings that you were doing in the past and probably still do now? So well, what is excellence and what is pleasure? I think these, these are two of the three things. And then the third thing is 
what is what is English about it. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things we did is we went looking worldwide for mentors. Uh, and we, we, you know, when you ask for help, uh, people are often quite flattered and very happy to help. Uh, and so what we slowly learned uh, is that excellence in wine has a lot to do with structure. How does the body and the structure and the nature of the wine bring you an amazing and distinctive nose, a beautiful, balanced and elegant body, and a lot of lingering personality on the finish? It's, it's a shape that goes on and on and on. And I think, at least for me personally, that kind of being able to picture wine in shape really helped me to kind of subsume myself in the world of understanding and frankly judging wine. And what, what we found after tasting after tasting is that the huge world famous names from across the way um, had a lot less personality uh, and maybe a bit of a kind of not such a pleasant finish. And so while they gave a lot of pleasure because of their glamour and their reputation, when we paused and paid attention to what we were taking into ourselves, we thought, hmm, actually, we might be able to beat that from, a, from the beginning. And how cool is that? You know, so it's sort of a, a David versus Goliath kind of challenge. And then it, we sort of slowly, slowly, the more we tasted over years, and in fact, the more then we had our own wine and then followed our own wine from bottling through to release and then years after release, we started to learn about not just what makes excellence uh, and what brings people pleasure in wine, but also what does set England apart and what it, what is what is English terroir? What does England taste like and what are our unique characteristics? So it, it's kind of taken us a, a long time and our every bottle uh, and every you know every day every bottle evolves that little bit more and is and is different yet again. Uh, so we're constantly learning about our own wine and our own uh, adventure to produce world class English sparkling wine and bring it to the world. Uh, so it's yeah, that's uh, it's it's been quite a wonderful time. Yeah. So I like the, the, your emphasis on structure because that's something that when I taste wine, it's. A lot of people go for the fruit aromas, what does this wine taste like? But it's actually the structure of the wine which provides that quality, that sense of excellence and sense of this is what's holding the wine together and this is what it actually is. And then the other word you use is personality, which I like. The wine should talk to you. You should be having a conversation with the wine and it should be fun, interesting, as well as excellent. So in a nutshell, what is the personality of English wine? So England um, has something really, really gorgeous. Uh, And let me just, if I just pause for one moment. Any wine person who says terroir is ridiculous nonsense um, of over fancy wordisms, uh, I challenge them to come to my blending seminars and sessions. Uh, So I'm not a farmer myself. Um, We are England's first negotiant. We can talk more about that in a bit. But what that means is that my wines are based on a cross-section of English terroir. So we have built up 
uh, a small family of vineyards, about half a dozen, across Kent, Sussex, and Hampshire. Uh, and you can have two vineyards who are directly next to each other. They can be very different. Uh, and but what unites them, though, is, is the you know, overarching personality of English terroir. And that is two things, very simple, two things. Energy and sophistication. So all English sparklings that you will taste will show those characteristics. Now, each house has a different site or a set of sites and a different philosophy in the vineyard. My personal philosophy is this is quite out there and quite unique, this English character, and I really, really want to lean in and accentuate it. And I can do that. I can, I can you know, uh, be quite out there because I'm a producer of 10,000 cases. I'm not trying to produce millions of bottles and make everybody happy and be quite easy. I'm trying to say this stuff is so cool and it really deserves to be understood and, and appreciated. So the main soil that we have that drives um, all of this personality is chalk. And the symbol of England, the White Cliffs of Dover, is also the symbol of English wine. So it's super easy to remember. So when you lift this bottle of non-vintage brute to your mouth, hopefully you've got a glass that's got a good wide rim so you can give it a nice swirl and get your schnoz in there. Um, ask yourself if you can smell the White Cliffs of Dover, because I hope you can. Hmm. Yeah, I think the White Cliffs of Dover is a really good um, physical description because everyone can picture it in their mind and know what they look like. And it's quite rare to be able to see the soil type so kind of prevalent in an image like that. And you know that that's what's continuing underground and that's what the vines are growing on. And also, of course, that shows that vines are growing pretty near the coast, near the English Channel. What kind of influence does that have on the growing conditions for English uh, vines, both good and bad? Um, so, well, we, um, English wine country is the, the southeast of the country. Uh, the west of the country um, and Wales and Ireland are our windbreak. So basically the weather comes off the Atlantic and it just gives it to them. But by the time the clouds get to Sussex, and we're based here in Arundel, you know, so they're, they're coming off. And by the time they get to us, they're like, you know, whatever. Uh, so Sussex and Kent are, are the warmest and driest counties. Uh, and uh, also the counties where we have these chalky soils. And we are, of course, the northernmost commercial vineyard growing country in the world. Uh, and it's because of the various currents and airstreams and maritime climate that we have such a, a moderate uh, weather, set of weather. You know, we don't, uh, so Jason and I, for example, we both used to live in Boston. Uh, and Boston is a lot colder in the winter and a lot hotter in the summer than here. And people would say, oh, you must really miss, you know, kind of because you live in the rain. It just rains all the time. I'm like, well, this summer in Sussex, it was like living in Mykonos. Um, and it was not always like that. And our weather is quite variable. So I guess the downside is being the most northerly um, wine growing country in the world, commercial wine growing country in the world. We have a lot of variability. 
so with my my flagship style for example um and uh, which is our vintage reserve brute that's typically what i pour first when i'm meeting sommelier and critics and traveling internationally because i want to show people you know one of the top wines of from this country uh, i declare vintage two years and five and it gives you a sense of how up and down but it's also what you know the reason I make a non-vintage wine is not for business and not for money. It's because nature told me I have to. Non-vintage wines have only really been produced in our whole nation in the last few years uh, because 2012 was really, really tough. Uh, and I had, some, I had some beautiful fruit, but it was insane. It was not a bottle of Digby on its own. And our winemaker... Um, use a lot of colorful language because he is from Ireland. Uh, but he just said, basically, this tank, we will forget it exists and it will come around eventually. And eventually that tank arrived and it said, I don't have the structure to be a Digby vintage wine, but I am a beautiful, rich component now that I've had time to settle and mature. Uh, and so our non-vintage brute here was born. Well, yeah, I'm a big proponent of non-vintage wine in general, not just for sparkling wine. I think it's a great way of having consistency and presenting your style um, that doesn't vary from year to year. And of course, England does have that variable climate, as you mentioned. So I'm from the northwest of England and, and from Blackpool on the coast, where we certainly receive a lot of rain. So we uh, maybe we're acting as a buffer for you uh, down there in the southeast of England as well. So it's interesting about the concept of being a negociant, so being a, a blender and a merchant. What kind of inspired you to go down that route? Our mentors. Uh, so we, we had a hunch that our customer, and our customer really is a, a way of, uh, people who have a way of living, where they, they don't just always do what they're told, and they don't just always do what, is the done thing where they like to discover the sort of the naughty new and the fabulous new and say, ah, oh, you might not know about this yet. So we knew, we knew that. And that has always been our kind of founding inspiration that this, that customer will love this wine. Um, but we didn't happen to have millions of pounds to play with or a lot of land that we already um, could plant. And often in the wine world to get going from scratch, it really helps if you have those two ingredients, wealthy parents um, or be retired and be wealthy and have a country house with lots of land. So we thought, well, let's, let's see. Um, and so we bought tickets to San Francisco and drove up to Napa. And I, I had cold called the top 10 sparkling houses in Napa. And nine of them uh, very generously took a meeting with us. And we said, we have this ambition to make English sparkling wine world famous and bring it to people uh, and to, to aspire to become a luxury brand. And they said, well, that's cute, boys, but that's not a pretty label. You know, uh, don't be cynical about the wine world. You've got to get through the Don Davies Master of Wine gatekeepers, um, as, as she was uh, at Selfridges. And they they will judge the wine as the beginning, the, the middle and the end and everything else is filler. So they said, you've got to have the wine to deliver and, but you're so far North, you're going to be up and down and back and forth. So they said, you need two things. You need proven sites and a small variety of them, just enough variety 
So in other words, don't plant a vineyard, boys. It would be a mistake for what you want to achieve. Um, do something different. Do something that's never been done in England before. Don't be afraid of your principles. And they said also, um, to our shock, don't even build your own winery. We're like, so we just fake it? And they're like, no, you said proper. If you want to be proper, the wine has got to be proper on its own. So you've got to have enough slightly different pieces of structure to come together. Now, if you have too many different things and you're just chucking them in the tank, then you have a milkshake. That's the problem that our competitors from down there have because they produce so many millions of bottles every year that it's not that interesting. Whereas we can do interesting in smaller quantities. Um, and they said, as far as a winemaker goes, you don't need control. You don't need your own tanks. You need a winemaker who's been making wine off of these soils with this weather for years because it is going to be hard and you need that creativity and resilience and that mental library of well and and dermot our winemaker will say you know this vintage is a bit like four years ago a bit like seven years ago and let me tell you the five things i've never seen before every year is like that so that was so the californians gave us our homework and they said hold yourself to your own standards um and so we hit the streets. So we've tasted and tasted and tasted across pure chalk, which is this purple color, across green sand, which is the next layer down, which is a chalky sandstone with a slight greenish tinge, or sandstone with a mix of clay in it uh, here in the wheel. So we have, uh, if I go to the other side, we used to be underwater. Um, during the time of the dinosaurs because there were no polar continents. So the um, flow of the oceans was very different and the whole planet was much warmer. And so sea levels were 250 meters higher and over millennia, lots of sediment was deposited that turned into the chalk, the green sand and the sandstone clay soils. Then in the ice ages, uh, kind of what was pushed into a hump when the Alps were formed 50 million years ago, and then in the ice ages carved through. So now you have the South Downs Ridge and the North, so the South Downs Ridge goes here, beautiful for walking. So we live and work in the South Downs National Park, and then the North Downs Ridge, and then in between those ridges, uh, a, a valley. And depending on where you are, you're either on pure chalk on the South side, green sand, or in the weald on south-facing slopes uh, in clay soils. And they, they are all about energy and sophistication. But then within that, they're all very different. And they play very different roles in my wine. So it's, it's a privilege to be able to take the synthesis of what this place what, and what nature gives us and be able to share it with you you and your members in California. Yeah. Well, it's awesome because I think what I like about the story is that sense of the community in the wine world. Everyone wants to help each other, I think, which is always exciting. That's how you get to meet really interesting people from all over the world. And then just looking at the map and the way you're describing it, this sense of understanding of England and its terroir and its soils, it must be really developing as you learn more and more about that relationship between uh, the land and the wine, something maybe 10, 15 years ago wasn't fully understood. 
And even, even now, it's very much in its infancy because most producers are single vineyards making vintage wines every year. We have grapes, we make wine. And, you know, back when we started, all were. Um, and even now, it's still the norm. You know, people catching the, the, the English wine bug and I, all I want to do is plant a vineyard. Um, and we've obviously taken a different approach, but hopefully you and your members can taste why. And I love traveling across the U.S. and showing off our wine. It's so much fun. Yeah, and the quality is there for sure. And I, I like the, the fact that there's a fruitiness to it, which balances that really high acidity that you expect from England's cooler climate. It's got a, and that word you use, sophistication, it's just, and pleasure as well. It's pleasurable, but not in an easy way. It's pleasurable in a way that just, it's quite soothing. I that's the correct word. It's just something that you want to drink, but it's not just a gluggable wine. And and it takes a real balance. So for me, the acidity is one of the major components of that energy that I talked about. Uh, and you can do a lot in the winery to get that to get that to calm down. But actually, we are this kind of ironic mishmash of an. England's first negotiant obsessed with terroir and wanting to show off what's unique about this. And the acidity and that, that drive is the core, the kind of the backbone of the structure of my wines. And so I've really lent into it, uh, which is why our wines tend to be quite a bit older uh, than a lot of English sparkling wine. And this is a beautiful thing for there to be diversity within the category, because if we're all making the same wine, then what's the point of that? Yeah, and I think that's a good um, example of where England is at now, that there are different producers making different wines, and you're showcasing one aspect of England's terroir, but other producers will be doing something slightly different. That's what you want, as you say. You don't want everything to taste the same. And... Um, what I like about this wine, you mentioned it's a little bit older, just tasting it now, is the Scourged in May 2019, it's in the back, which I appreciate um, that information. It, it's a wine that's so fresh and has that structure that I can imagine this drinking this in two, three years' time, and it's still having that structure and that complexity. So it's not, I think there's a, a tendency to dismiss non-vintage wine as, oh, you've got to drink it now. I think this is a wine which will quite happily evolve um, over time. And, and, it, and it depends on the producer and, 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 and. I mean, my goal with the non-vintage styles um, in my house um, is not to kind of have an entry-level wine. It's, I, you know, this, this wine has won platinum and 97 points uh, in decanter, and that's what I expect of him, to behave and to perform, but to have fun. Right. Um, what I wanted for the non, once I, like that tank, of 2012 base wine informed me that I would make non-vintage wine. I said, right, well, how do I, what is the role in the Digby family that this wine will play? And so the way I describe a non-vintage wine is that, uh, for, for Digby, is that they are a more relaxed version of the family. So in fact, the non-vintage brute specifically, I describe as the cheeky baby brother of the lineup um, in comparison to who the vintage reserve brute, which is the, the kind of the firstborn. So here's, here's a little cheeky question for you then, Matthew. What would you guess is the base year for this wine? 
because a, a non-vintage wine has a majority of a base wine from one year and then a little bit uh, from years prior. So how, what would you, what do you, what do you reckon? That's a very cheeky question. Um, that's very difficult because that acidity is really high in a good way, which makes it feel very youthful. But then there's a kind of mature, lazy, yeasty, toasty, slightly spicy, which suggests a bit more maturity. So it could be five years old, maybe. So 2014, 2015. Show off. It's 2014. Ah, fantastic. I did not know that. But just as more room well, was in the wine, but also listening to you describe your wine and that you like more maturity just gave me that impression. But it's still so fresh. I think if I hadn't been listening to you just now, I would have guessed a bit younger. But listening to you and then tasting the wine, it's like, oh yeah, there is some maturity to this wine as well, which gives it some body and structure. And, and this is part of what is so awesome about making wine in England, because you can have a non-vintage wine for $50 that is just at the beginning of its adventure of evolving and showing off what it can do and has so many, so much to say. And, you know, it's pretty clear that what we as a nation of producers have to do is to produce wine of amazing value for money. Um, did I say cheap? No. Um, but value for money means that you've got loads under the heat uh, and that for, you know, pound for pound, euro for euro, dollar for dollar, you're out delivering the more established players. Uh, and I think England does that really well. And, when we first launched for sale in the United States, which was in October 2016, uh, of course, we were slightly terrified with our, our kind of most affordable wine being $50. Uh, and again and again and again, as I traveled around the country on my first ever um, US Digby wine tour, I was told that the wines were really good value. And a, a little bit of me, you know, just wanted to faint with relief. Um, and, and I don't take that for granted, and that's not a kind of simple thing to say, uh, but I think what I have learned is that the U.S. is full of people who know in, in, the, in the world of wine um, enjoying a good thing when they see it, and it has been such a pleasure getting to know a lot of them, you know, from, from Memphis to to California, to Texas, to, to Maine, uh, and everywhere in between. Yeah, your definition of good value is very important to understand the thing and to appreciate that good value doesn't mean cheap, it doesn't mean inexpensive. It means that, that wine in that glass is worth every penny or cent that you've spent on it. And, and, and I, would, I would agree, this is, you know, $50 may seem an expensive wine, but it actually absolutely um, uh, punches above that weight. And, you know, and what is it, you know, what is it that makes the difference? Well, I, you know, I talk a lot about the terroir, the, the soil, the chalk, um, the weather. But part of what is so special about that, which is really intangible and hard to describe, is that the juice that then comes out of the press in a good year 
has the potential to age for 20 years. And in traditional methods, sparkling winemaking, age is everything. And how, how cool is it that we, as this baby nation of sparkling wine, uh, can, you know, outscore Dom Perignon and Krug? They're supposed to be untouchable, aren't they? Uh, but we have outscored them, not with this wine, with our, our, our flagship vintage, but uh, it's naughty and that is fun. Fantastic. So it sounds um, that England is in a very exciting place right now in terms of its sparkling wines. What's your prediction for the next 10 years? Where's England going? So we as a nation are making huge investments in quality. Uh, and that is our bedrock um, into which we are kind of sinking the foundations of skyscrapers or what we hope will become skyscrapers. So for example, when you left the UK, London was not a skyscraper. But these days, um, pretty much every restaurant in London, customers, consumers expect them to have English sparkling wine on their list by the glass. It was not that way when you lived here. Uh, and it is not that way in every city across the country yet. Because you have to kind of co-opt people into the English wine movement. Uh, and it starts often with sommelier and critics and people who work in the world of wine and then evangelize and, and bring it to their best customers who then tuck it under their elbow and then go out and throw dinner parties and use tin foil and and then it just sort of spreads so when, when we launched in the united states in in 2016 uh, there had been one sparkling english sparkling house in the states for a few years that hadn't really made much noise and then we launched with three other houses all in one big british invasion uh, and then ever since then it's it's there's been a lot of um a lot of producers have spent a lot of time in the market i would bet that none of them have spent more time in the market than me um but it's we've been taking our wine to uh, and kind of converting people often huge skeptics as i was well, it's either complete rubbish or there might be something there. Uh, so I think what, what will happen is, you know, the investments that all of us are making into quality, but also the time that we're spending to make friends around the world will help to build our nation's reputation. Why should that ever end? So it wasn't that long ago that wine from New Zealand would have been considered a bit of a joke. That's um, a good analogy, I think, because New Zealand has built its reputation on good quality wine. That's how it's established itself in the, the global market. And I think the same thing with England. If you're building from a foundation of quality, then you're in a very strong place. Whereas if you build on a foundation of inexpensive wine, it's very hard to rescue that reputation. So I think the foundation blocks seem to be the right ones. And that's why you talk about skyscrapers. They're going to be on very solid ground and not collapse. You hope so. And you have to plan uh, and you've got to, you've got to engineer and execute and build well. So one of the um, cool opportunities I had is at the height of lockdown, we had to kind of rejig some things and in our, our tasting room in Arundel, let's go back there. Um, uh, my tasting room manager gave his notice and he actually got poached to go to another wine job. Good for him. Um, 
so I was like, oh goodness, what do I do hiring at the height of this nonsense? Uh, and I ended up splitting his job into two and hiring a, a hospitality person to run our tasting room once it was allowed to reopen. Uh, and um, as a marketing manager, I hired a woman who had founded the cellar door operations of a winery in Woodenville, Washington. Uh, and so she spent 14 years working in the Washington wine industry and seeing that go from uh, very much a kind of newbie baby to now being a linchpin in the, in the economy of, of kind of big chunks of the state of Washington. And I think that's what's happening and will slowly happen here as well. So Arundel is an hour and 20 minutes from London by train. Uh, it's a beautiful town with a Norman medieval castle. Uh, we've got our tasting room, which is a former bank hall with Sir Kenan Digby, our namesake, uh, looking down at us, basically saying, boys, don't fuck it up. Just like RuPaul. He's our RuPaul. <laughs> and we haven't had any tourists this year, um, but normally we are on the tourist circuit and British customers will kind of poke their noses in and say, what are you? Can I come in? <laughs> and American tourists say, look, wine tasting. Because in, in, in America, your wine industry, um, particularly on the West Coast, but certainly not exclusively on the West Coast, has become well and truly a core part of your rural economy. And consumers love it and know what it is and what it does for them. And uh, whereas we Brits are learning. Right. Yeah, I think that'll be an important thing of the future, having wine tasting as a tourist experience and as a, as a destination. And um, isn't there a beautiful cricket ground in Arundel as well? A beautiful... Cricket ground. Yes. So one of the signature kind of most iconic cricket grounds in the country is the Arundel Castle cricket ground. Yeah. So I've never been there, but I've seen pictures of it. And so next time I'm in the UK, which will hopefully be sooner rather than later, I'll definitely uh, take a visit to the southeast of England to visit you and Digby and other English sparkling wine producers as well, because I really want to explore what is going on and kind of bring to life what you've been talking about in this interview. And We'd love to have you. We'd love to have you. Yeah, hopefully next year. Yeah, so thank you for uh, taking time to uh, talk to me and to taste with me. Um, Pleasure. A pleasure to um, taste the wine. I didn't need any excuse to have it open, but I have this excuse. And uh, great to actually meet you virtually and to talk to you. I think really fascinating English sparkling wine in general, where it's going, the quality and the direction, and to talk to you specifically and talk about Digby as a, I think, real good standard bearer of um, the quality of English sparkling wine. I think this is very typical, very representative, and um, an indication that England is in a very good place in terms of quality. Thank you. Thank you. So the non-vintage brute here is our most popular selling wine in the United States. Uh, every country that we're in has a different wine, which is the best seller. <laughs> uh, and so the, whereas the flagship um, is two thirds Chardonnay and one third Pinots, this is two thirds Pinots, 40% Pinot Noir and 25% Pinot Meunier and one third Chardonnay. The Chardonnay really is the thirstiest when it comes to drinking up the chalk. So it kind of drives, it kind of provides the backbone of the wine, but the, the Pinots give it its exuberant heart and it sort of 
party orientation. Uh, and that kind of, I mean, our wines retain their fruit character really beautifully, even through long aging, which I think makes them quite modern because it's sort of traditional um, spark, you know, kind of traditional method, traditional, traditional method sparkling would be all about that kind of lazy opulence. Whereas you get some of that, but you also get the fruit and the freshness. So my, uh, my suggestion would be uh, fried chicken with some lime juice sprinkled over the top. I can see that. I also think um, the sign of a good wine is that you can drink it now and you can drink it in the future and that you can always go back to it. But you should be able to drink it now as well. And I think this wine ticks that box. And you can enjoy it in California, a sunny afternoon, as well as um, any time of the year, I think. Yeah, so thank you, uh, Trevor, again. Really nice to meet my you. My pleasure. And I hope um, my members and listeners have got a lot out of uh, this conversation and learned more about English wine. Uh, these are wines definitely to uh, look out for and to explore. Brilliant. Thank you, Matthew. I hope you, the listener, have learned a great deal about English sparkling wine, a young region which is ever-evolving. Go out and taste some. Thank you for listening. This is Matthew, and this has been Matthew's World of Wine and Drink.